Well, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles now and turn them to 1 Peter chapter 3, this very interesting passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. And as you turn there, uh, you know, you, you may be able to tell kind of from what I said and, and, and uh, what I read that we, we're in store for a little bit of a different message here today. In fact, I kind of want to warn you, uh, today's message may feel a little bit more like you're in a seminary classroom at times than in a church service. And the reason why is because today we are taking a look at what has been called before one of the most difficult passages, not just in the book of 1 Peter, uh, but we're taking a look at what has been called before one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible. In fact, in my studies this past week, I was interested to come across a quote by Martin Luther, the great reformer of the faith. And if you know anything about Martin Luther, you may know that he wrote commentaries on several different books of the Bible. And if you've ever read the commentaries that Martin Luther wrote, you will see that Martin Luther did not lack any confidence in his interpretation of Scripture. In fact, I wish I could be as confident about anything as Martin Luther was about everything. He just had a ton of self-assurance. That's why it's really interesting to read what he said about this passage in 1 Peter. In his commentary on 1 Peter, uh, Martin Luther wrote this. He said, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. And I love this next line. He says, I still don't know for sure what the apostle meant. I still don't know for sure what the apostle meant. And the reason I share that quote with you is because that quote should give all of us today, or at the very least it should give me, since I'm the one teaching, none of you are, however you are more than welcome to this weekend if you want, but that should give all of us here today some degree of humility when it comes to the interpretation of this passage. You see, I, I know what some of you are going to do out of this service this weekend. What some of you are going to do is you're going to decide that you don't agree with what I'm saying here today. And so you're going to go online and you're going to search for this passage. And you're going to find some guy who says that they know for certain what's going on in this passage. And you're going to send that link to me. And you are more than welcome to do that. But what I want to let you know is I do not think there is anybody this side of heaven who can say for certain what's going on in this passage. It, it is just too obscure, okay? There are just too many difficulties in it. Now, with that being said, I do want to let you know that I did do my homework for this message. And I probably consulted about 12 plus different scholars to see what they had to say on this passage. And during my research, I was pleasantly surprised to find that there is kind of one overarching interpretation that has arisen these days when it comes to this passage. In other words, there does seem to be a bit of a consensus among scholars as to the right interpretation of what's going on here. And that is obviously the interpretation that I am going to give you here today. So with that being said, what is it that is so difficult about what we're seeing here? Well, it all comes down to really just one little phrase in verse 19 that Peter makes. After Peter talks about what we touched upon last week, how uh, if we suffer for doing what is right, then we are in good company because we follow the example of Jesus who himself suffered, right? He was put to death, he was crucified for doing what is right. After Peter talks about that, then Peter proceeds to make an interesting comment about something that Jesus did following his death and resurrection. And it's truly an action of Jesus's that we don't get mention of any other place in our Bible. We see it, as I said, in verse 19. Look with me there, 
Talking about Jesus, Peter writes this. He says, after being made alive, he, meaning Jesus, went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And immediately our eyes are drawn to the confusing part of this passage. And that is what Peter tells us right in the middle there, right towards the end there of verse 19, when he's talking about after Jesus' death and resurrection and probably after his ascension as well. We're told that Jesus went someplace, and I quote here, he went there and he made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. You see that there? It says he made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. And then these imprisoned spirits are further defined in verse 20 as those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, I know I ask this question a lot in my messages, but I want to let you know I am more serious than ever when I ask it here this weekend, and that is this. Brothers and sisters, what in the world is going on in this passage, right? What in the world is Peter talking about? Who are these imprisoned spirits? Why are they imprisoned? What, what is the significance of what it is that we are reading here? Well, in my research this past week, what I re realized is that really all of this comes down to two questions, okay? And we're going to spend the bulk of our time, actually all of our time today, answering these two questions. The first question that we need to answer in response to this question is, quite simply, who are the imprisoned spirits? What is their identity? Who are they? Why are they significant? Okay, that's the first question. And then once we answer that question, the second question we need to answer is kind of the big so what question, right? What does this have to do with anything? My mom had a, had a question she used to ask us kids growing up from time to time. Maybe some of you have heard it before. It was the question, what does this have to do with the price of tea in China? Have you ever heard that before? What does this passage have to do with anything? Why does Peter talk about what is the significance of it for his audience? What's the significance of it for you and me? Those are the two questions that we need to answer. So let's begin with the first question first, okay? Who exactly are these imprisoned spirits that Peter is talking about here? Well, in my research, what I found is most scholars believe that the answer to that question is found in another somewhat bizarre passage in our Bible. And it's a passage that records an incident for us that record, it's a passage for us that records an incident that occurred right before the very famous story of Noah and the flood. Right before God sent a flood to this earth and he saved Noah from the flood in the ark. And that's what brings us in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Okay, so if you're following along in your Bibles, you can turn right now to Genesis chapter 6. And as you find your place in Genesis chapter 6, listen, I know that whenever a pastor these days starts talking about Noah and the flood, especially in our modern sensibilities, there's a lot of questions that come to our mind. Did that really happen? How does that square with science? How did the ark work? How did all those animals fit? And so on. And, and you know what? Those are excellent questions. And if I get my way, someday we will do a series on the book of Genesis, and I will answer all of those questions, or at least some of those questions. But for our purposes today, here's what we need to know about the story of Noah and the ark. First of all, we need to understand that from the Bible's perspective, it is a historical event, okay? It is something that actual, actually happened. That's the first thing. And the second thing that we need to know about Noah and the ark is not only does the Bible present the story of Noah and the ark as an actual event, 
It really presents it as a necessary event. And what I mean by that is if you know the story of your Bible, you know that there is a reason why God sent the flood to this earth. And that is because the earth at the time of Noah had gotten so wicked, it had gotten so evil, it had gotten so out of control that God basically got to the place where he said that the only solution he had was to start all over again. Where he decided that basically he had to wipe mankind off of the face of the earth, save a few people, and he had to begin again. And that is exactly what is told to us in this passage we're going to look at in Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to pick it up here in verse 1 of this passage. And in this passage, we get a picture of just how out of control the world was at the time of the flood, right before the flood. And as I read this passage, understand this is the passage that most scholars believe sits behind the imprisoned spirits in 1 Peter chapter 3. So let's take a look at what it says here. Moses writes this. He says, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, it says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. I want to read that again, okay? Pay attention. It says, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, it says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. And brothers and sisters, there you go, okay? That explains everything. That's who these imprisoned spirits are, and there we find the answer to the first question. Let's move on to the second. No, I'm just kidding. That explains absolutely nothing, right? This passage is even more it's confusing than the passage in 1 Peter. Can you tell why I lost sleep over the message this past weekend? I got two confusing passages that I need to explain here. So what in the world is going on in this particular passage? Well, let me do my best to explain. You know, for those of you who grew up in the church, those of you especially who grew up in Sunday school, hearing the, the story of Noah and the flood, if I were to ask you, why did God send the flood to the earth? The answer I would imagine probably most of you would give is what I said just a few minutes ago, right? That the world had gotten so evil, it had gotten so out of control, that that's why God decided to send the flood to the earth, so that he could judge mankind. And, and that is absolutely true. But did you know that the Bible actually tells us that the flood was really in direct response to one specific event that began to occur here on this earth. We are told in the Bible that there is one specific thing that began to happen on this earth that when God saw it, he said, that's enough, I need to start all over again. That's what the Bible tells us. And do you know what that event was? Well, believe it or not, it was a certain type of marriage that began to happen on this earth. There were some marriages that began to happen on this earth that when God saw them happen, that's what pushed God over the edge. And that is what this passage in Genesis chapter 6 is all about. Now, this passage in Genesis chapter 6, it occurs right before God decides to send the flood. And at the end of verse 2 of this passage, we are told that right before God decided to send the flood, there was this marriage, these marriages that began to happen between two groups of people. And I'll talk about the two groups of people in just a second. But you see that at the end of verse 2. There's this phrase at the end of verse 2. It says, and they married any of them that they chose. 
So there were these marriages that began to happen. And it's in direct response to these marriages that we find the first indication that God is going to judge the human beings of this earth. And that's what we see in verse 3. Right after these marriages are mentioned in verse 2, God essentially says, hey, my spirit is not going to, my Bible says contend, but I think the better translation is remain. My spirit is not going to remain with humans forever, he says. He says they are only going to have 120 years left here on this earth. And so when you put these two verses together, what we conclude is evidently there was something so wicked, so evil about these marriages that when God saw them, he said, okay, I got to start over again. So what was it about these marriages that were so wicked? Well, the answer is found at the beginning of verse 2. Because in the beginning of verse 2, we're told who it exactly it is that starts getting married. And we're introduced at the beginning of verse 2 to two groups of people. They're referred to at the beginning of verse 2 as the sons of God and the daughters of humans. Okay, the sons of God and the daughters of humans. Verse 2 again, it says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them that they chose. And so in order to understand what's going on with this marriage here, we have to understand who those two groups of people are. So who are they? Well, the second group that, Peter, that, that uh, Moses talks about here is really easy to identify. The daughters of humans, we can tell, especially from verse 1, they were ordinary human women here on this earth, okay? Daughters of humans is just a fancy way to say ordinary human women. So that's who the, the daughters of humans are. But who exactly are the sons of God? Well, here's where it gets a little bit difficult and a little bit tricky. Because quite honestly, we can't tell from the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis does not identify for us who the sons of God are. So we can't tell from the book of Genesis, but not all hope is lost. Because you see that phrase, sons of God, it's used a few other times in our Bible. In fact, we'll put the references on the screen for those of you who like to take notes. You can write these down or you can take a picture of it. And those are all the different times that the, the phrase sons of God is used in our Bible. And if you look at all those different references, what you will find is every single time that the phrase sons of God is used in our Bible without exception and without any questioning whatsoever, sons of God refers to angels. It refers to spiritual beings. Probably the clearest place where we see this is Job chapter 1 verse 6. We'll put this on the screen. Right at the beginning of Job, it says this. It says, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. And you see the NIV uses the word angels there, but the Hebrew that is really behind the word angels is the same phrase that we see in Genesis chapter 6. Literally that verse reads this way, one day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. And there the, the sons of God clearly refers to spiritual beings. It clearly refers to angels. And if you look at all those other references that I shared with you, you will see that the same thing applies to all those other places. And so, since every other time in the Bible the phrase sons of God refers to angels, there's no reason to believe that it refers to anything differently here in Genesis chapter 6. And so who are the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6? Well, the sons of God that are being talked about here, they are angels. 
They are spiritual beings. Specifically, given the fact that God doesn't approve of what's going on here, we can conclude that they are fallen angels. They are demons. That's who the sons of God are. They are evil angels. And it's when you begin to think about that that you understand what's going on here and why God gets so angry. Why, when God looks at these marriages, does he begin to get so upset, so angry that he decides, okay, I need, to, I need to start all over again. I need to wipe mankind off of this earth, and I need to begin again. What is going on here? Well, what's going on here, Genesis seems to suggest, is that we begin to have on this earth an intermarrying of species on like an entire different level. What we begin to have is we begin to have demons start to marry humans. We begin to have evil fallen angels begin to marry human women here on this earth. And it's when God sees that that he says the world is out of control and I need to start all over again. That seems to be what Genesis chapter 6 is saying. Now, I can tell from some of your faces what you are thinking right now. And you are thinking, Pastor Chris has lost it, right? You are thinking, this is absolutely crazy. And some of you, I can tell, are already looking online for different interpretations of this passage that you can send me. And I understand that. This is a very weird sort of thing that is happening here. And that's why I do want to let you know, the next Bible masterclass that I'm going to do, that those online Bible studies I'm going to do, it's probably going to appear in the fall. Uh, that is going to be called Angels and Demons. And the entire class is going to be on what the Bible says about the spiritual realm. And we will probably devote an entire session to this passage right here because of how foundational it is for the Bible's teaching on the spiritual realm around us. And there I will have much more ability to be able to answer questions and raise all the issues that this brings up and, and even bring up the different interpretations that people have on this passage and why I think this is the best one, okay? So you can look forward to that in the future. But for our purposes today... Let me say a few things about this interpretation, okay? The first thing I want to say is this. As crazy as this interpretation may seem to some of you, understand it is the oldest known belief that we have about this particular passage. In other words, our ancient spiritual fathers in the faith, this is what they believed was going on in Genesis chapter 6. They believed that evil angels were marrying human beings. In fact, we know for a fact that during the time of Jesus and during the time that the book of 1 Peter was written, this is the interpretation that the majority of Jewish people held. And that goes a long way. So as crazy as this interpretation may sound, it is the traditional interpretation of this passage. Second thing I want to say is this. Again, as crazy as it may sound, I do think that this interpretation gives the best explanation for why God decided to judge the earth in the time of Noah. You know, we, we read these first couple of verses in Genesis chapter 6, and there are a lot of questions that we have. But one of the questions that we are left with is we're told in this passage why the demons, why they wanted to marry women, we're told that the demons found the women attractive. But we're not told in this passage why the women wanted to marry the, the angels, the demons. Well, John MacArthur, who I know many of you know and listen to and respect, uh, he uh, has an interesting theory on this. He holds to the interpretation that I just gave you on this passage. And what he suggests is what we see in Genesis chapter 6 is we see a repeat of the sin in the Garden of Eden. 
You know, if you think back to the Garden of Eden, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, what is the bait that he used? What is the line that he used in order to get Adam and Eve to eat the fruit? Do you remember what it was? Genesis 3, 5, Satan says this. He says, you will be like God. You will be like God. And John MacArthur thinks the same exact thing is going on here in this story. That one day these demons, they were existing in the spiritual realm and they got bored. I don't know. And they began to look at the women here on this earth and they found them attractive. And so they left their, their spiritual realm and they either took on the form of human bodies or maybe they entered human bodies. We know throughout the Bible that demons can do both of those things. And they went to these women and maybe they tempted them with the same exact thing that Satan tempted Adam and Eve with. Hey, you marry us, you will be like God. You'll be married to a supernatural being and we will give you more glory, more money, more power than you know what to do with. In fact, maybe they said, you marry us and you will be immortal. And these women, or maybe their dads, since we know in the ancient world, it was often fathers who were responsible for finding the mates for their daughters. These dads, they took the bait and they married off their daughters in hopes of wealth and power and glory and, and immortality. Who knows? And believe it or not, something actually like that began to happen or at the very least something interesting came out of these unions. That's because we are told, believe it or not, that these marriages, they began to produce children. They began to produce offspring. And that's what we're told in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 6. Look there. As if it didn't get weird enough, it gets even weirder. Verse 4, it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in these days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans, and here's the phrase, and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. And there we see at the beginning of 4 uh, the uh, reference to the very mysterious Nephilim. And the Nephilim are mentioned only one other place in our Bible, in Numbers chapter 13. And in both places where the Nephilim are mentioned, we get the impression that the Nephilim were sort of superhuman beings here on this earth. We get the impression that they were giants, they were bigger than everybody else, and they were skilled warriors. No human being stood a chance in battle against the Nephilim, and evidently they were the children of these perverse, unholy unions. And obviously, none of this is what God would have wanted, right? This isn't the world that he created. And so it's when he looked at all this that he decided that he had to start over again. So as crazy as this may seem, I, I do think this provides the best explanation for why God sent the flood here to this earth. And then the other thing I want to say, and then, then we'll move on. The other thing I want to say in defense of this interpretation is although this may sound a little weird, is it really, at the end of the day, is it any weirder than believing that God's Holy Spirit impregnated a virgin who then gave birth to the Son of God? Is it really any weirder than believing that when we die physically, our souls go on forever in a place either called heaven or hell, a place that none of us have ever seen before, and really we have no proof that it exists? You see, what I'm trying to say is to be a Christian is to believe in the supernatural. To be a Christian is to believe that there is a world out there that we cannot see and perhaps is not tangible, but is no less real than the world that we can see. And let me just say this as an aside here. I think we Christians in America, I think we would do well to become more aware of the spiritual realm around us. You know, whether or not this interpretation I give to you here today is true, 
The Bible makes it clear that there is a spiritual dimension around us. And this spiritual dimension has good beings in it. Absolutely, it does. But it also has sinister beings in it. And they are out to get us Christians. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we cannot be ignorant of the way that the evil spiritual world comes after us Christians. So at the end of the day, I don't really think this interpretation is all that crazy. And indeed, one of the reasons I also believe it is because a couple of other places in our Bible, these sons of God, these fallen angels, they are mentioned. And believe it or not, one of the other places where they are mentioned is the other book that is written by the Apostle Peter. And that is the letter of 2 Peter. And you can turn there right now. 2 Peter chapter 2 is where I'd ask you to turn. 2 Peter chapter 2. So as I said, in response to the, the actions of the beings here on this earth, God decided to judge the earth. He decided to send a flood to this earth. Now obviously a flood would take care of the human beings who were living on this earth at this time, but a flood would have no effect on spiritual beings, right? A flood wouldn't take care of them. So how did God punish the demons who married the women at this time? Well, what was their judgment? Well, Peter seems to tell us in 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Look with me there. Peter writes this. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. And I want you to stop right there. And men and women, what is Peter talking about in these two verses? He's talking about Genesis chapter 6, isn't he? In verse 5 of this passage, he's very clearly talking about the flood, the judgment that God brought upon the humans in Noah's day. And do you know what, what, what Peter's talking about in verse 4? He's talking about the judgment that God brought upon the angels. As I said, a flood would not affect evil angels. It wouldn't affect, affect spiritual beings. And so God had to give them another judgment. And what judgment was that? Peter tells us in verse 4. It says that God sent these angels to hell, and I quote here, putting them in chains of darkness to be held in judgment. What did God do to these angels? He locked them up, right? He locked them up. As it says there, he put them in chains of darkness. Now, think about that phrase just for a second, chains of darkness. What does that sound like? Does it sound like God sort of put these angels in a spiritual prison? Does it sound like God took these angels and he imprisoned these angels? He's in, he imprisoned these spiritual beings, imprisoned spirits. Where have we heard a phrase like that before? Are you paying attention? Where have we heard a phrase like that before? Our passage in 1 Peter, right? 1 Peter chapter 3. And you can turn back there. Who are the imprisoned spirits of 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 19? Well, what most scholars believe is the imprisoned spirits of uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, they are the demons. They are the sons of God of Genesis chapter 6. When God took a look at how perverse, how evil the world was, he decided he had to judge it. To judge the humans, he sent a flood. But as I said, a flood was not going to affect angels. So to judge the angels, what did he do? He put them in a spiritual prison. He locked them up. 
This is what Peter seems to indicate in 2 Peter chapter 2. This is also, by the way, what Jude, the brother of Jesus, seems to indicate in Jude chapter 1 verse 6. We'll put this verse on the screen. Listen to this verse in light of everything that we just said. It said, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And what most scholars believe is Jude chapter 1 verse 6, 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4, and 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 19, they are all describing the same group of beings. The imprisoned spirits are these demons who tried to marry women in the days of Noah. That seems to be what's going on there. And, and here's, that's where we find the answer to the first question. And that leads us then to the second question, right? So what? <laughs> what does this have to do with anything? Why does Peter talk about this? What's the significance of this? Well, here's what we need to understand, okay? The most important part about what Peter says here in this passage it's actually not the identity of the imprisoned spirits. No, the most important part about what Peter says here in this passage is the fact that Jesus went and made some sort of proclamation to them. That's what we see in the middle of this verse, right? It's that Jesus went to them after his death and resurrection and he proclaimed something to them. Now, what exactly did Jesus proclaim? Well, Peter doesn't tell us specifically. But the Greek word that is translated proclaim there, it helps us out a little bit. Because that word is a word that was borrowed from the ancient world at this time. And in the ancient world, whenever a nation would conquer the city of another nation, what they would do is they would hold a parade in that conquered city. And they would hold a parade to gloat. They would hold a parade to, to, to pronounce to everybody that you have been defeated and we are the ones who are victorious. And the word that was used in that setting is the same exact word that is translated proclamation here in 1 Peter chapter 3. Based on that, it seems as though the proclamation that God made or Jesus made to these imprisoned spirits is one of his victory and their defeat. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because, you know, I imagine when Jesus Christ, when he hung on that cross, Satan probably thought that he had won, right? Because here the creator of this world had come to the very creation that he created. And when the creator of this world came to the creation that he created, what did his creation do to him? They killed him. They put him to death in one of the most heinous ways possible. Does that not show the influence of evil on this earth? Does that not show Satan how much he had corrupted mankind that he could get them to kill their creator? And that's why I think as Jesus hung on the cross, Satan thought, we won, we did it, God has been defeated. But what did Satan not realize? Well, what Satan didn't realize is the death of God. It, it wasn't the defeat of God, it was the victory of God. Because through Jesus' death, God found a way to conquer evil and sin. Because through Jesus' death, God found a way to forgive sin. And I think that's what Jesus proclaimed to these angels. I think after his death and resurrection, what Jesus decided to do is he decided to go to some of the evilest angels that ever existed here on this earth. And Jesus decided to gloat to them. I think Jesus said to these angels something like this. No, 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 you're not getting out. You're in here for, he probably didn't do that. He's not as petty as we humans are, right? 
But he announced his victory and he announced their defeat. And that that is what Jesus probably did is kind of confirmed by the last verse of this passage where Peter says this, talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And what that verse is telling us, it is telling us that Jesus is Lord over all. Jesus is king over all. And that is the lesson out of this passage for all of us. I'm going to put a verse on the screen, okay? This is Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. In many ways, I think this verse is the lesson that we're supposed to get out of 1 Peter chapter 3. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, it says this. Paul is writing here, and he says, Let, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And that's the lesson of this passage. You know what Peter is really telling us in this passage when he talks about these evil spirits and Noah and all that sort of stuff? You know what Peter is indicating to us? He is indicating to us that there are going to be times on this earth when not only does it feel as Christians like we are surrounded by evil, But there are going to be times when it feels like evil is winning. There's going to be times when it feels like evil has the upper hand. That is absolutely what was going on in the days of Noah. You know, we get the impression in the book of of Genesis that during the time of Noah, there was literally one person who was doing what God wanted him to do. And it was Noah. Not even his family, we get the impression, was doing what God wanted him to do. Noah was the only person following God. Can you imagine what Noah thought as he looked at the evil around him? Not only did he feel surrounded by evil, but he probably felt like evil was was winning, right? And and that is probably the same exact thing that Peter's audience felt as as Peter was writing this letter to them. Remember, as Peter was writing this letter, what, what was his audience going through? They were going through persecution. Some of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ were being lit on fire as human torches. Don't you think some of these Christians began to feel like not only are we surrounded by evil, but evil is winning? Well, you know what? That's going to happen to us sometimes as well. You know, we have sort of this romanticized notion in American Christianity that if we do everything that God wants us to do, that everything's going to go well and everything's going to go smooth. And I have no idea where we got that from. We definitely didn't get that idea from the Bible. Because the Bible seems to indicate the exact opposite. That when we do everything right, things get difficult. Things get tough. Why? Because we are literally being surrounded by evil. Because even in a world that we cannot see, there are still evil angels, evil spiritual beings who do not like when we do what is right. And so when they see us do right, they go after us and they attack us because they want to discourage us. Because they want us to stop doing what's right. And probably all of us have faced that at some point in our lives. I know people in this church, you did everything right at your job. And still you got fired. Still you got passed over for a promotion. I know people who own companies at this church or who owned companies who tried to follow the law to a T and tried to be nothing but honoring and yet still they got sued by unscrupulous employees and people they did business with. And some of them lost those lawsuits and they got put out of business as a result of that. 
I know people who, who, who tried to, 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 to stay committed to remaining pure before marriage and that action wasn't rewarded with a spouse. In fact, it pushed people away. They thought they were weird. I know high school students and college students who have resisted giving in to the temptation of their peers at school and all that has gotten them is lonely nights. All that's gotten them is it's put them on the outside of everybody at school. And that happens sometimes. It's hard to be a Christian sometimes. It's discouraging to be a Christian. Because we literally have evil forces that are going after us who want to persuade us that it's not worth it to do what is right. And so we're surrounded by evil. But here's what we know and here's what Peter tells us. Peter tells us that evil will not ultimately win. Because Jesus is victorious and he has made that victory known. And we know there is coming a day when God is going to show that victory. He will judge the evil of the earth. And when he does that, just like he did for Noah, he will save you and me. In the same way that he saved Noah from the judgment of his day by immersing him in the ark in the midst of those floodwaters. What Peter tells us is that God's going to do the same thing for us. He will save us from the future judgment by immersing us in Jesus Christ when God brings his judgment to this earth. That's what the reference to baptism in verse 21 really means. Baptism simply means to immerse. And the point that Peter is making here is in the same way Noah was saved from the judgment of his day by being immersed in the ark, so we are going to be saved from the future judgment by our faith in Jesus because we are immersed, we are in Christ because of our faith in Jesus. And what we know from that, therefore, is although it may seem like evil wins from time to time, we know that evil won't have the last word. We know that God will protect us. He will save us. That's the hope that we have. And that's what I say to all of you. You know, I, I know when I stand up here on, this week, on the weekends, I know that sometimes I talk to a group of very weary and very tired Christians. And I know that there are some of you, quite honestly, you are tired of the fight. You're tired of the fight. You're tired of, of, of the injustices in this world that, that never seem to be solved. You're tired of being the only voice of reason in your job, in your family, in your circle of friends. You're tired of fighting for a, a relationship, fighting for a marriage when it doesn't seem like your spouse even cares of it. You're, you're tired of, of being left out of events because you're standing up for the truth. You're tired of being the only one who stands up for the truth, even among your Christian acquaintances. You're tired of the fight. And sometimes it seems a lot easier just to give up and to give in, to join the club, to do what everybody else is doing. Well, I want to let you know something, okay? Though no one else may see or recognize your fight, God does. In fact, if there's one story that we learn from the story of Noah, we learn that God sees the one. Though no one else may seem to see or recognize your fight, God does. And not only does God see your fight, he has already won it. And in the same way God rewarded Noah for his faithfulness, in the same way that God rewarded Jesus for his faithfulness, so God will reward us for ours. And so that's why I want to say to you, first of all, don't give up. Don't give up the fight. At your job, continue to do what's right 
even if it doesn't get recognized. In your school, continue to stand for your convictions, even if it puts you on the outside at times. In your relationships, continue to to stand for purity, even if it pushes people away. In your family, continue to stand for grace and truth, even if it alienates you, even if it causes disagreements. Don't give up the fight. As I've said several times, even recently, God's got this men and women. He's already secured the victory. And so we can't give up the fight. And then the second thing I want to say to you is this. We are here with you in the fight, okay? We are here to stand with you in the fight. Whether or not you believe the interpretations I gave on this passage, as I said earlier, if we believe the Bible is the word of God, we cannot deny the existence of the spiritual world around us. We cannot deny that Satan and his forces are real. And we cannot deny that they are out to get us. But at the same time, I also believe that God has given us everything we need to win this battle. And I believe one of the most important tools that God has given us is he has given us prayer. And that's what we want to do right now. In this closing song, we're going to have people at the crosses. And the people at the crosses are here for one purpose and one reason only. They are here to stand with you. They are here to lift your arms in the midst of battle. And so, if you're coming here today and you're down, or you're discouraged, or you feel ready to give up in the circumstances of your life, or maybe you have already even given up in some of the areas of your life, I believe behind so many of those emotions and feelings that we have is the enemy. And we want to pray against him. And we wanna pray for God's victory in our lives. And so that's how we're gonna close our time together right now. So would you do me a favor, would you all stand with me right now? And as you stand, I wanna call our prayer team right now as we speak to the crosses. You can get out of your your, uh, seats and go to the crosses so we can be ready to, to pray for one another. And as we enter into this time, let's call upon God right now, let's pray. So Father God, we come before you, Lord. And God, we recognize uh, that it is tough sometimes, Father. That sometimes it is really difficult to follow you, to do your will, Lord. That the rewards that we receive in this life, God, um, we don't always see them because some of those rewards that we receive are not in this life. They're in the next life, God. And instead, we, we get the, the, the difficulties, we get the hardships, we get the, the, the results of the attacks of the enemy coming against us, Lord. But God, we know something. We know there is coming a day when your son will return to this earth and his victory will be made known, Father. And as we find ourselves in him, Lord, the victory that Christ secured will be ours as well. And so God, God, I pray right now for those sitting in these seats, those standing right now, Lord, uh, who are under attack, who are tired, who are weary, who are discouraged, Lord who maybe already have or are very close to just sort of giving up the fight. And God, I pray right now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would strengthen them and you would encourage them, Lord. You would speak over them the victory that your son has secured over the forces of evil, God. And I pray, God, that they would begin to see some of that victory come into their life, Lord, in terms of strength and hope and encouragement for the road ahead, Father. 
And God, I pray that as we turn to you right now in worship and in prayer, Father, I pray anybody here who needs that, that help, someone to come alongside them and whatever is going on in their life, Lord, I pray that you would give them just the, the boldness to, to step out of their seats and to receive prayer, Father. And I pray that as we go into this song, God, would you, would you please let there be just a sense, an awareness, a knowledge of your presence here in this place, Father. And God, would we leave this place here today with the hope of knowing, Lord, that we're on your side and that's all that matters. And so God, we give this time over to you. We thank you for what you're gonna do in and through it. And we ask all this in your son's name.